Hello, hello. Welcome back to the CTO studio. I, of course, am your host, Nikolai Walker, on the mic and in your ear with the content you want and the content that you need. We are doing our wrap-up today. It's our final interview with Brent Cooper, who is the New York Times best-selling author of The Lean Entrepreneur and Disruption Proof, which we're going to really dig into through this segment. So we're in the center of a conversation. We are talking about competitive edge and what the E's representatively, not, you know, the first letter of Etienne's name, but what the E's mean to Brent. So I'm going to turn it over to Etienne, who will take over and be ever so eloquent, far more than myself. Etienne, you're up. I saw you talk about the E's, the three, yes, the three E's. We went up to Johannesburg, we went down to Cape Town, and you did quite a few engagements blew the minds of the uh, entrepreneurial South Africa, but it was it was awesome to see. So the ease made it into your new book, Disruption Proof. So so what I would love to do now is hear you tell me why you wrote this book, uh, Disruption Proof. It's a great name uh, only because I've heard phrases like future-proofing. I've heard phrases like we're going to disrupt this industry, man. So I feel like because you're that guy, you probably picked words that that needed to be spoken to. So so tell me why you wrote the book, and then I want to dig into a couple of the, the, the ease in your framework. Yeah, you know, the, so the book project started way before the pandemic, but it, you know, it's pretty hard to do anything last year without uh, the pandemic becoming... Uh, you know, first and, and foremost. And what I found was that, at least in my thinking, that the pandemic was accelerating disruption that was going on on a bigger, more massive scale. And you can just look at, you know, what was going on with, say, Zoom or remote work. These things that were all trends beforehand suddenly becoming, you know, uh, more commonplace. And so I think that in my view, people were conflating the pandemic with disruption. And, and I wanted to sort of point out that there was this bigger, massive disruption that was going on, which is the move from the industrial age to the digital age. Um, and that uh, fundamentally, I think, the structure, the way we manage uh, people, processes, are fundamentally changing in government, education, business, all across the society uh, because we are running around with computers in our pockets that are massively more powerful than the very first computers that were room-sized back in the 50s. I mean, that's actually kind of an extraordinary thought all by itself is that this computer is massively more powerful than the room-sized, you know, ENIAC uh, a computer that was... Uh, in the 50s. And so the the 20th century was dominated by command and control, hierarchical management of science uh, type of mentality that was really geared around the assembly line. The assembly line is the perfect way to imagine what 20th century industrial age management looked like. Well, our world doesn't look anything like the assembly line uh, anymore. And, uh, and so new management and new structure and new everything is going to evolve now in society because 
the very fundamental basis of technology is different than what was before. It's all digital now. The speed of information, the the interconnectedness of the world and of all of us uh, is just extraordinary. And um, so that was really that was foremost at the at the the reason why I was writing the book. And then, you know, the pandemic ends up being just one one thing that has disrupted our lives in a tremendous way over the last year. But if you look at if you look at the entire year, it's really even more extraordinary than that. It, you know, you have the uh, Black Lives Matter, you have uh, energy grid, grid collapse in Texas that you know a uh, bunch of people are killed and put out of work and and can't eat. And I mean, just extraordinary. And you've got uh, a, a ship getting stuck in a canal that upsets global supply chains. You've got a you know <laughs> insurrection. Uh, you've got the a crazy election. I mean, the, all of these things are disrupting either our lives or certainly a portion of our lives. And this stuff is going on globally. And so I think that part of part of this interconnected com- complex world that we live in is made us super fragile and that we need to get out in front of reorganizing our systems so that we can weather these storms better so that we can, uh, handle these, what I think are endless disruptions. I think that these type of disruptions are going to happen now on a regular basis. And so everybody's like, ah, oh, we're going to got to get, you know, we got to rush back to, to normal, whatever that is. And I don't think that there's any such thing. This is like, this is just the new world. And so we have to look at the way that we're uh, building things in order to make them more disruption proof. And then of course the, the, the pandemic shows up and, Boy, did that drive the point home. All the trends that were happening beforehand were accelerated during during the pandemic. I saw um, today Apple employees sort of uh, <laughs> not wanting to go back. They don't want to go back to the spaceship. Well, I mean, it's just... It- What's amazing to me is that in one of the most advanced tech companies in the world, you've got a management structure that sits there and goes, nope, no remote work. I mean, just like, and that that's how they deal with it. Centralized, hierarchical, command and control. And what's extraordinarily different is that the employees fight back, right? (laughs) And they're all like, "Uh, yeah, not so easy. And uh, it's becoming more difficult to hire engineers if you do not get engineers the ability to remote work at least some some of the time. And it's amazing how much power software engineers have. And so I just I think it's extraordinary that Apple represents that old school top down management hierarchical decision making as opposed to. And I've got a couple of videos coming out in the next couple of weeks about remote work in general. Uh what a what a serious lapse in how uh, in, in how companies should be dealing with even this um, complexity of of remote work. What do you what do you just on that briefly? What do you say to the people who talk about the serendipity of crossing each other in the hallway and the impromptu overheard conversations where you can ideate and jump into a conference room? 
I agree with all that. I, you know, I just, the, the answer isn't binary. It's not remote only, and it's not office only, and it's not the ridiculous hybrid approach that these companies come up with, which is arbitrarily choosing two days of the week, Mondays and Fridays are also can be work from home. I mean, it's just so dumb. And, uh, and even the employees in their, in their, you know, their response to Apple get it right. They say, no, it should be up to the teams. And it gets back to this idea of teams being the new unit of work. You know, it's just unfathomably dumb to me to think that I'm going to force a team of maybe what, seven to 10 people all have to drive in to this centralized office, an hour commute, sitting in traffic, because that's the rule when all of them could have said, well, let's just go to this co-working spot that's here. And next week, you know, we can do it closer to you, Maria. No, no, nothing, nothing, nothing stops them from still getting together and having ser- manufacturing serendipity, but on their own terms. You know, I looked at my cl- I looked at my closet the other day and I was like, this is I have the most neglected, janky closet I've had in years because I haven't gotten dressed to go anywhere. And I was thinking as we're starting to travel again and starting to see people, I'm I'm thinking, wow, I need I need new clothes. Well, what's funny to me about that? Yeah, what's funny to me about that at the end is that these management are acting as if they were actually actively engaged in ensuring their people were engaged, collaborating, um, making progress on their work when everybody comes to the office. And listen, whenever I went into the office, I never saw my bosses. They were in meetings literally all day, every day. So suddenly these leaders are all concerned about whether their people are engaged and collaborating because they're actually working from home. They don't manage that stuff when the people come into work. It's this feeling of comfort. It gets back to what we talked about a little bit last time, this feeling of trust, that if I see them in the office, then I can make this assumption that they're doing their work. But you know what they're doing? They're surfing. They're watching you know, the French Open. They're you know, talking in the, in the coffee room. They're like, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just so much BS and it's so simplistic to think that like, if they're in their office and I can see them, ergo, it means everything is rosy. It's just dumb. The classic um, managing others like you manage yourself. So maybe when you start going up to the managerial levels and you're in meetings all the time and you're always talking and it's just from one meeting to the next, maybe you're thinking, well, I manage myself by being in the hallway with my other managers. And so I want my people who do not want to be interrupted. They want to be in the flow. They want to wear their headphones. They want to be left alone. And yet we're like, no, you like you said, it's it's the way you describe it just makes it sound laughable that because you showed up. I remember as a uh, as a startup, my CEO had a huge problem with my developers uh, not showing coming in late to the office. I'm like, 
How on earth are we going to define late, brother? L-A-T-E is a four-letter word that means nothing to a developer. The very first job I had, which was a long, long time ago, very first post-college job I had, I used to show up at 7.30 and leave at 4.30. And the amount of chatter that would go on because I was walking out of the office 30 minutes early was incredible. Incredible. Yeah, I uh, I bucked the system by by leaving early on Friday afternoons. I, and, and I actually advocated for not going into the office on Fridays. And that was the, a great idea, but it was way too early for its time. This was in the early 2000s. Then I said, well, I, I, I'm telling you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come back to the office after I've gone to lunch on Friday. I'm going I'm to hang, I'm going to relax. And then you need to start quantifying, well, you know, when you child for work at 6.30, I was still in the office. Then you're in such a petty conversation. It's ridiculous. So I get that. I was just going to say, what's funny to me about all of that is the the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week is completely arbitrary anyway. This is not like scientific management, like we figured out that 40 hours in the office is the optimal level of performance. It's completely 100% arbitrary. And we're very good as humans to fill up those fill up those spaces. I really wonder what the amount of actual productivity time is happening in the office in an eight-hour in an eight-hour eight day. Uh, huh? What? What? What did you say? <laughs> Human beings just aren't wired to be that focused for that long anyway. No, no. And it's, um, you know, I think I think the my takeaway from this conversation is the the centralized view, like you said, that if you're not in the office, I cannot manage you. Um, it just raises the bar for intentionality, right? So the amount of conversations we've even had as CTOs in seven CTOs around just helping remote teams get through their work week, the mental well health, well-being of people, the um, this had this had to be a massive shift because you can't make a whole set of assumptions anymore, but. Just because you made those assumptions doesn't mean that you were a good manager or a good leader. It, it actually exposes the fact that there was convenience, there was complacency, and what remote work has done is, is it's, it's put all the managers on notice. Like, listen, there's, there's a different way that you need to show up in managing your people now, and that is with way more intentionality around their personal well-being around their productivity, around their um, being absent from Slack. Like, it's, it's just a whole new space. I agree with that. I mean, I think that if the pandemic... You know, it's just another thing that the pandemic drove home is that people are having and have been having for a long time difficulty balancing all of the things that they need to balance in order to be, you know, contented, productive people. And this is not, you know, live work balance where we split up the day between, you know, home and and work. It's 
allowing people to organize their lives so that they can have a healthy relationship with their partner and they can have a healthy relationship with their children and they can take care of their parents if they need to, and they can take care of their own, um, their own spirit, spirituality, if they need to, and their own health. I mean, there's all of these elements that we know go into being a productive, contented person. And all of the studies have shown that that increases the productivity of people when they are working. Um, and so I just, it's, it's, we're hanging on to this old school uh, mentality for, I just don't even, I don't know. I don't know why it's just because we've always done it. That's what is facing uh, hiring managers now and companies is how to be competitive amongst other employers. And, and I'm imagining insisting that someone goes into an office is no longer a, it, it's a competitive disadvantage for that person deciding between which res, which uh, opportunities they're going to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I hope that, I hope that holds true. Um, you know, I, I, the, we were, we were going to talk about the, the five E's and the first E there is empathy and, and, uh, and, you know, I think most organizations now understand how that's important in understanding customers when you're developing products and marketing and all the rest. But the other major component of that is having empathy inside your company. And so what's getting lost, in my opinion, in all these discussions around remote uh, versus uh, in the office is getting empathy for both the leaders and the employees about well, what are the actual needs here? Why is it that you want to be remote? Why is it that you don't want to be remote? Does it mean that you don't want to ever come in? I mean, what understanding, understanding your people. And again, it means leaders as well as the employees doesn't mean that that's, you, that doesn't dictate the, the policy, right? You could sit there and interview all of your employees and 90% of them want to work from home and you still implement an office-only policy. It, it's, it's up to you, but you just need to understand what the ramifications of your policies are. And you also might learn other things that can be ameliorated with other policies. And so what if everybody just came in at 10 instead of at you know, 8? or 8.30 or not. I mean, I don't know. There's just simple ways that if you learned why, you would be able to implement policies that actually positively affected your employees. But it just seems like even in this example, nobody's stopping to learn why people are asking for what they're asking for. And it's just a huge missed opportunity to apply empathy inside the business to improve you know, quality of, of your company, quality of your life, quality of your people's lives. Yeah, and I th and I think the uh, to that point and maybe to cap that is Tim Cook's email stated that he misses you know running into people and being around people and so because he's the CEO of the world he's like well I'm assuming that you all miss being around us and like and that's where the empathy was sort of a little out the door there so. So, so the, if we let's talk about the e the e's. Uh, so they are in service to what, and then let's run through them.
So they are in service to creating an organization that's disruption proof. Uh, so uh, to me, the, the biggest, what disruption brings, what the new world brings, what the digital revolution brings is an increase in complexity in the world and these endless interruptions or disruptions that, that can occur that come out of the blue. We kind of know that they might happen and we can prepare for them in a certain degree, you know, security and, and disaster recovery and all those, but we don't know when they're going to happen. We don't know how huge they are going to be. We don't know how disruptive they're going to be. So if that's the new world, what we need to do is change mindset and change behavior all across the organization from the front line to the C-suite, you know, every department. And these behaviors are represented by these five E's or five elements. And so they are empathy, exploration, evidence-based decision-making, equilibrium, and, and ethics. So let's start, let's start at the top. So we kind of just addressed empathy. Um, but let's uh, just, just the one-line summary, empathy in the disruption-proof model means... So empathy means understanding customers, uh, stakeholders, each other, and you know colleagues uh, deeply. It's understanding uh, desires, needs, uh, motivations, aspirations. Um, it's understanding you know sort of the deeper levels uh, about both customers and colleagues. Um, and again, it doesn't mean doing what they say. It just means understanding why they say what they Got say. It. Okay. So then the next one was. Uh, exploration. Next one is exploration. Right. And so exploration is, is something that you alluded to earlier, sort of this learning mode. Um, so exploration uh, might include, you know, sort of design thinking, uh, human centered design practices, running experiments, rapid experimentation, um, anything that we do in order to go and, you know, we're facing uncertainty. We're looking at the unknown. How do I actually move these items that are in the unknown bucket over into the known bucket. So it's having a learning mentality. Yeah. Next E is, is evidence. And so this is sort of, you know, how do we cut through our own personal biases? How do we overcome disagreements? How do we, uh, how do we come together, you know, to build consensus? Uh, and it's being willing to look at the data. And so you might, it's a good practice to define what data you're going to look at before you say, go run an experiment. And then we agree to, to formulate whatever policies or decisions based upon the data that comes back. Um, so evidence can come from expertise. It can come from empathy work. It can come from experiments. It can come from research. Um, but it's, it's, a commitment to using the evidence to inform our decisions um, in a way that, that hopefully cuts through our biases. It's not, the data doesn't make the decisions. We still have our own other things that we have to balance. And I'm one that believes in intuition and believes that people's expertise and knowing, you know, sort of that knowing what's right. I think that those are okay things to weigh, um, but it should be weighed, you know, with the evidence got it i love that and i'm and as you're talking i'm kind of formulating this as to how it empowers people on the edge right gets back to that the evidence for the ideas right so uh so the next d is equilibrium and equilibrium 
again, it sort of means a couple of different things, a couple of different areas. Uh, equilibrium primarily is this idea of balancing everywhere inside your organization. You have to balance the execution work that has to be done with some amount of exploration work. And so if you've got that product development that's going on and you absolutely know what needs to be built, then you've got a, a an engineering team there, an agile team that is execution focused. They're still, however, just using, you know, kind of the scientific method or the iterative approach that are actually doing exploration work there. They're writing code, they're testing it. Uh, when it doesn't work, they're iterating, right? So that's sort of an example of exploration mode. If you're on a sales team uh, and you're you're uh, working with a relatively new product or a new customer market segment or something, you have to update your selling scripts or whatever. There's a little bit of learning mode that's even in that execution. And so there's a balance there, primarily execution work, a little bit of exploration. If you're over in, you know, R&D that's looking out at new technology, you know, that's going to come to life 10 years from now, or you're in the innovation group and you're spinning up an internal startup, there's massive amounts of uncertainty. And so you're, most of what you're doing is sort of this learning mode. But the moment you learn something, you actually start executing on whatever you've learned. And so there's the balance on the other way. And all across the organization, it's a continuum where people need to balance differently this execution work with the uh, with the exploration work. The other part where that word works, equilibrium, is getting back to that that balance that that we know human beings need in their lives to be contented, productive human beings. And and I believe it's managers and leaders and companies' responsibility to give their employees um, the space, uh, for them to, to work on that equilibrium. And, and, and I think it will improve productivity. Yeah, that is, that, 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 that is so good because when I think of equilibrium, again, it's something that I think it can be, can be trained at the, at the most, at the lowest level. Um, uh, you know, you can even set sort of an equilibrium percentage if you want to get all nerdy about it. But, but I feel like all these E's so far are trainable right up to the edge, so that people can are empowered to make their own decisions as long as it, you know these things are kept in mind. Yeah, I totally agree. Again, I actually, it's why I'm a huge fan of some of the agile practices, because you can build the equilibrium right into the sprints. You can just say there's a rule that every sprint or every other sprint, we have to take from our backlog this this learning mode. We're going to do a day of empathy work, or we're going to run, you know, set up a new experiment. And that just flows into this the sprint planning. Um is depending upon what percentage needs to be learning mode. So I, again, I think a lot of these agile practices are, are, are perfect, perfect for that sort of thing. Um, the final E then is ethics. And I think that this is, um, this is a tough one for a lot of organizations. They set their corporate values. And I think most people believe in their values, but they have a really hard time weighing individuals behavior against those values. Uh, and there's, you know, all sorts of research. I think, uh, I think uh, Dan Ariely has written about this uh, sort of thing that, you know, without, 
without sort of the supervision, without the being called on particular behavior, the power for human beings to rationalize what they just did <laughs> uh, is super, it's, it's like a superhuman power, right? Is this ability to, to rationalize. And so I think that what we need to do is define expected behaviors, again, down on this edge level that you're talking about, um, so that people understand what the boundaries are for their behaviors. And in this, uh, this uh, House Subcommittee on Antitrust, um, there was just an incredible document, actually. There's this quote from this, this Facebook, or maybe it was a former Facebook engineer, where basically this person was saying is that, uh, you know, all my management cared about was getting another 30 seconds of engagement time. And they didn't care how we did it. And there was no ethics of it. It actually ran counter to the corporate values, but we were only measured on increasing engagement. And you can just see that that is leads to unethical behavior. And so I think that, uh, I think that here again, in my view, Agile offers an opportunity where you're, you know, giving a team a mission. Uh, you can actually ascribe ethics and values right at that team level. And in the end, the social construct of a team is, is one of the most powerful aspects of maintaining culture and of maintaining values is if you have people on those teams that are willing to say, no, we can't do that, that goes against you know, the ethical principles that are defined here in our mission, then that's almost all you need to reinforce that. And it ends up being a self-reinforcing uh, culture um, that starts, you know, from the grassroots and, and works its way back up. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, it goes right along with, with empowering the edge to, to uh, you know, to, to exhibit those behaviors that, that you need to exhibit. Yeah, I love that, Bront. Good stuff. I think the, I think those five E's definitely contributes in my mind where we started with this conversation in building autonomous employees, autonomous humans to, uh, you know, first of all, continuously foster empathy. What are we trying to do? Who are we trying to help? Uh, how are we changing lives? Not only outside the company, inside the company. Uh, what can you know? What what can we do to have empathy-driven ideas and innovation? But then landing it into that exploration phase, where okay, you can uh, now <clears throat> from that mindset, you're able to say. I, uh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to explore. So they're empowered to explore. And then, then there's like, okay, you've explored, but now let's root that in evidence so that, uh, you know, this is a productive conversation. We're not, um, it's, it's, it's exploration. It's exploration for the sake of empathic communication. Like, Hey, how is my, 
How's this going to land with people who are busy, people who have a thousand things on their plate? Like, how can I make it easier to palate or, 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 or how can I make it uh, something that draws people in? And that is going to be, listen, it's not just because I had the idea, but I went through the exploration phase. I, I took the time preemptively in secret, behind the scenes, whatever, to work more to provide evidence and hopefully the evidence um, um, confirms, you know, the exploration. Clearly, if it doesn't, then great. You had a great, rich conversation with yourself in your head. But And then that whole equilibrium of empowering sort of the team to, to – or, or empowering departments to say, listen, if there's full certainty, then we know what needs to be done and, and you know, the equilibrium swings a little more, a lot more to operational efficiency, time to market and all that kind of stuff. If it's on the other side, then it's like, hey, we're not going to try and manage you uh, R&D team or or uh, what did you call that? A, a, squad, a squad or something. Uh, we're going to manage you to enrich those ideas. And then you freaking bring the hammer down with ethics. It's like, listen, we we uh we do things a certain way uh there's you know there's ethical considerations in everything we do i mean i i really think that that's that's a very very solid solid uh pen, pen, pentagon pen, pen, penta pentagram penta something penta it's pentagram like instagram but it just takes 5 seconds or something it was really, uh, it was really landed for me, uh, especially since we started with this, you know, this whole concept of ideas are, are everywhere. But this, to me, is a coachable framework that you can coach any and every employee on to be able to start pushing forward the competitiveness of the company. So yeah, so I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a super important point too because I think that this is not just for new products, right? This is for improving uh, internal processes. This is for the HR department that is thinking about launching something new uh, internally, right? They're going to revamp how uh, how reviews are done, you know, or or whatever. It's uh, you know, it's IT that's. Uh, you know, wanting to uh, up their service game to all of their internal employees. It could even be, you know, we've done a workshop where a design team, uh, you know, couldn't, uh, wasn't working well with the manufacturing uh, team that was there in the same building. And, and, you know, you can use those same five E's to, to help those two groups get together and, and work, work uh, together better. So, it's really wherever there's uncertainty, wherever there's, uh, you know, sort of an issue or, or something that, that can improve the company just from an efficiency point of view, right? So it's not just product or revenue focused or market. Um, it can apply, be applied anywhere and everywhere. Absolutely. And then, the, uh, again, with the, with the aim of attracting talent, uh, extracting gorgeous ideas, um, and building that sustainable future for the organization, that that model completely, for me, is a trainable, coachable model. So I love it. 
Thanks again for joining us here in studio, and thank you to our guest, Brant Cooper, the New York Times best-selling author of The Lean Entrepreneur. He's also the CEO of Moves the Needle, and he is also the author of his new book, Disruption Proof. So if you have not already done it, please head over to www.0111conf.com so you can register for the conference. It is going to be great. 7CTOs.com is your action spot where you can get more information on topics like these. And as always, go subscribe to the podcast available on iTunes. We'll see you again next week.